Welcome to Aiming for the Moon. I am Taylor Bledsoe. And I'm Maddie Henry. And on this podcast, we interview interesting people from a teenage perspective. That's right. And today we'll be interviewing Dr. Joseph Lacante, who is the author of A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War, which is about J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis's friendship during World War I and how the war and their friendship shaped both of them. So here's the interview. So welcome, Professor Lacanti, to the interview. It's great to have you here. So you are the director of B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies at the Heritage Foundation. It's a bit of a mouthful there for me, but it sounds like a great place. Now, kind of what we wanted to interview today about today is your book, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War. So for those of you who don't know, that book's about J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis's relationship, their friendship, and how the World War I kind of shaped it. So it's great to have you here. Taylor, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so looking forward to our conversation. Yes, yeah, so am I. I've actually, when we scheduled this, I was very excited because those are two of my favorite authors. They provided wow. a lot of advice for the world. That's, that's exactly right. I think we don't quite appreciate how they overcame such great challenges in their lives, because as I'm sure we'll get into, they both fought in the First World War. And J.R.R. Tolkien, he, he, he survives it, of course. He's, uh, he's got trench fever that gets him very, very sick, and that gets him out of the war. C.S. Lewis is injured severely in the war by a mortar shell, fragments from the shell that uh, killed his sergeant. I mean, just literally obliterated his sergeant. Uh, and he survives that, and he comes out of that. So it's an amazing kind of story of how these men endured the suffering of the First World War, and then trying to think through, well, how might that have affected them kind of through life and affected their their literary imagination? Yeah, it's interesting because when I was studying um, J.R. Tolkien's, not sorry, I was about to say The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but The Lord of the Rings yeah. in school, and they were talking about how he would basically hated technology and kind of how it was implemented <laughs> right. in his books. And I've heard that. So I kind of wanted to talk about that. How did the war shape C.S. Lewis and Tolkien's kind of perception of technology? That is an excellent question, Taylor. I mean, even before the war, they were very uncomfortable what was happening in terms of the Industrial Revolution and how it was, how it was changing the landscape of England in particular, because they, they both grew up in rural parts uh, of the world. Lewis, uh, initially in Northern Ireland, Tolkien uh, first in South Africa and then in England. So they they really fell in love with nature and what nature had to offer. And then the Industrial Revolution in the 19th into the 20th century, it's, it's changing the physical landscape of their world in ways that they think are really destroying nature, disconnecting human beings from nature. And they're also worried about how technology is going to be used uh, in a way to exert power over other people, and I'm sure we can get into that, you know, the will to power, using the tools of technology and science to dominate other people. That's a huge theme in their works, isn't it? It is. It's it's very fascinating. And recently in that same school, but in a higher level class, we talked about Frankenstein and how technology can be both a very interesting thing, yes. very helpful, like with our new vaccine technology and everything yes. that's going in there. But it can also yes. be very negative as Frankenstein shows and how J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis show. So That's it's been right. kind of a fascinating discussion. It's, a, it's exactly right. The, the abuse of, of science and technology to serve the will to power. Now, think about it. 
These guys are in the First World War, which was the most destructive war that the world had ever seen. So it's the industrialization of mass slaughter. I mean, men are just kind of thrown into the fodder of it all. And the Europeans, they'd never experienced this before. They had like no mental category for it. They didn't know how to think about it. Shells pounding you hour after hour in the trenches. So that was an absolutely kind of horrifying experience in how technology can be used to destroy man and and to destroy nature when you think about the devastation in Europe from the First World War. So that's that's what kind of gripped my imagination about trying to understand these two men. And we'll talk about it some more, not only the First World War, but then then they have to live through a second world war. And I think that was probably as important to them and their imagination as the first world war. Yeah, it's really interesting. I don't know how much our listeners know about World War One because honestly, in school at least, it's kind of always been a little bit passed over because we always think of World War II as the big one yeah. or Hitler yeah. and all of the horrible Holocaust and everything that happens right. there. But if you see pictures of World War One, like it looks, it doesn't even look like earth. It looks like some nightmare landscape. And That's it reminds exactly. me, um, in the Lord of the Rings movies, I haven't watched the last one, but I've watched several of them. Interesting, they really get that dark theme throughout them to try to make it dark, almost like those pictures, I think. Yeah, no, uh, Taylor, you have put your finger on it beautifully. I mean, you, you know the passage uh, near the end of the Lord of the Rings where uh, Sam and Frodo are passing through the dead marshes, right? And then, and then Sam uh, falls on his knee, falls on his face, looks into the water, dead faces. I see dead faces in the water. Well, historians and biographers of Tolkien, they say that that description of the dead marshes, it, it's a, it matches exactly the experience that Tolkien would have had at the Battle of the Somme in France, where these large shells would create these craters in the ground. The craters would fill up with water, and then soldiers would fall into them and lie there undisturbed for days or weeks at a time, and you would just then discover them. So it's it seems to a lot of us that that description right in the Lord of the Rings is drawn from Tolkien's literal memory of a, of a battle scene in the First World War. Yeah, it's truly, if you don't, it, like, it's awful if you think, if you really think about it, like, that's Though some of the he's very well known for his very long descriptions, which to more modern readers, it can be, oh, this is a 20 pages describing the path through the trees. But if you really <laughs> think about it, like yep. back then, I don't know actually the technology of this. So please correct me. But I oh. don't think they had um, colored movies. Right. Is that correct? Do they have? There was no colorization. Like not, not as early as 1914 to 1918. That's correct. Okay, that's what I thought, but it would be interesting reading their books back then and seeing all the color, the vibrant color and the vibrant descriptions of these worlds. It would almost yeah. be like to the modern readers, um, it would almost be like watching a movie. So at least that would be my kind of um, feeling, I think. I think that's right, Taylor. I think we, we kind of forget the intensity of what, what was it like to be in a trench or to be on a long march, hearing the cannon shells, the mortar shells flying over your head, and sometimes not being able to even see your enemy just shells coming out of nowhere because they're sent hundreds of yards, even miles away. And then suddenly they're dropping down on you. Uh, we just have no idea what that's like, right? To, to live in that kind of intense environment, combat environment for day after day. That has to shape any, any man or woman coming out of that's going to change them, isn't it? It is for sure. I'm curious. I don't know much. Like I, I haven't actually seen this in C.S. Lewis's writing, at least the Hobbit, um, sorry, not the 
the Chronicles of Narnia. Right. Where does these darker turns uh, tones come into his story? Because honestly, I could have just be that I haven't been looking for them exactly. But Tolkien's are very apparent because he has. They're definitely written for a more mature audience. But where are these kind of tones in C.S. Lewis's writing? That's an excellent question. Now, Lewis had in mind a, a somewhat different audience than Tolkien. When Tolkien wrote The Hobbit, he has that in mind for children, right? But The Lord of the Rings, as, as he talked about in some of his own letters and describing it, it took on a different feel. It took on a much more adult, darker feel. He's writing that book right through the Second World War. He starts writing The Lord of the Rings in 1937. World War II starts in 1939. And he's writing that book right through the war. So it takes on a darker sense. Lewis, although he writes the Chronicles of Narnia, he starts thinking about the story during the Second World War, and he writes it after, but he really has children in mind for the Chronicles of Narnia. So he's more reserved, purposely more reserved in describing some of the battle scenes. But if you think about it, some of the descriptions, Peter in battle, uh, as you, as you, when you read the scene, the exhaustion, the blood, the fur, there's something there that I think you're in touch with, something real. Uh, when uh, Reepicheep gets his gets his tail cut off, I think it's Reepicheep, right? Gets his tail cut off in battle, bandaged up uh, at the end of the day. Well, think about it. Uh, the men in the First World War, one of the most poignant, iconic images of uh, uh, men who've lost their limbs and they're bandaged up and they're hobbling along. I, I suspect there's something like that going on in, in Lewis's mind, but he's he's writing for children, so he's going to be a little bit more careful about how how brutal the description is, how realistic it is. Yeah, but he definitely has those, as you said, those images in his head that kind of play probably as he writes, especially at Reaped Sheep when you were mentioning. It's interesting that Reaped Sheep is a character that I don't think the movies really gave some of the, the movies are great. They're honestly great. And C.S. Lewis, um, they really kind of portrayed the themes well. But there are some characters that you can't you can't turn into movie characters all the way. Is that you? Yeah. They're just you, you don't you miss the style. You miss the personality traits that the author puts into them. Yeah, I think you're right. And I'm glad you mentioned we mentioned Reapy Cheap. And you think about uh, uh, the Sam and Frodo and the Hobbits. This is a kind of a a little known but really important fact about these guys and how I think the war affected them. Tolkien said explicitly that his Sam Gamgee, you know, the Hobbit, was based on the ordinary English soldier that he fought alongside in the trenches because these these British soldiers, these ordinary guys, were doing quite often heroic things in trying to defend England and, and fight for their country. And, and surprising heroic things would come out of them. And I think for Lewis, it's the same thing. He makes, Reepy, you know, a mouse, a little Reepy Chief, is this heroic character. You know, the smallest of creatures has this great heroism. And I think it's a similar thing going on in Lewis's mind. He saw great acts of courage and heroism among ordinary English soldiers, not the big, big generals necessarily, but the, the, the farmers, the shopkeepers, uh, the grocers. Those are the guys who were drafted into the First World War that these guys got to know at a really personal level. And I think it influenced how they were going to portray their own characters in their great epic stories. It's interesting for sure, because the very, it's, oh, it's not the last scene, but it's one of the final scenes of at least the journey in the Lord of the Rings is Sam kind of dragging Frodo up the volcano, trying to get him to the top. And he's almost there. He's so close, but it's such a hard thing. And it's, I can kind of see how Tolkien could see his fellow soldiers Kind of, you know, uh, the, there's the classic picture of the soldier carrying his buddy over his shoulder. Like that's kind of the image he's playing in his head as he nice. sees Sam 
dragging Frodo up, trying to finish the mission, yes. trying to get it there. It's so close, yes. but so far away. I think that's exactly right, Taylor. In the, in the British military, uh, officers would have what they called a, a Batman, a servant, uh, you know, another guy who was helping him with his various uh, needs, uh, his his uh, ammunition, uh, his coffee, what he needed. He'd have that assi- assistant, and Sam was that guy, obviously for Frodo. But that's modeled on the English kind of military system. So here you have this desperate situation, and it's Sam who, in so many ways, becomes this heroic figure that you don't expect, right? And I think it's precisely what what Tolkien experienced. He was a second lieutenant himself. So he had a Sam-like guy helping him as he's trying to do his work as a signals officer. That was his job uh, in the British uh, Expeditionary Force in France. That's really interesting. So something that my class kind of touched on was the fact that in the movies, they left out this scene in kind of the end of The Lord of the Rings. And it's the kind of the scene that no one remembers if you haven't read the books. And it's where the bad guys have taken over the Hobbit's um, the Hobbit's world, the Shire. And basically they have to, Frodo and everyone have to come back and defend their own territory. And yeah. you, you don't ever see that in the movies. It seems like, oh, fairy tales, ponies at the end. But that's yeah. not how it was like. What yeah. do you think, what what was going through Tolkien's mind, do you think, when he was writing, it wasn't this fairy tale ending, so to speak? Boy, that is a terrific question, Taylor. And you're right, you don't give that enough attention. I And I, you see this both with Tolkien and with Lewis, they were convinced that the, the forces of evil, the people who want to use science and technology to dominate others, um, there isn't a final victory in this world on this side. Now, remember, they're both men of faith, Christian faith, and they they believe evil has to be resisted to the end, but we're not going to win the final battle on this side. It's going to rise again, and we have to be vigilant. We have to expect it's going to find another expression. We can't just go back to Rivendell or go back to the Shire and pretend everything's just fine. It's not. It, it's just waiting again to come uh, and, and devour us. Now, that's a very realistic, I think, if, if we could use a faith perspective, I think it's a very Christian perspective on the problem of evil, the problem of evil in the world. And it and I think they were really sobered by that. Think about it now, uh, Taylor. They lived, They fought through the First World War. And then they have this ringside seat in Europe, and it's all happening again, a second world war. And now it's happening on a more ferocious and even demonic scale, if I could use that that language, because, you know, it's Nazism. It's the Nazis now who want to devour all of Europe. So these guys have become pretty convinced, not just because they're Christian believers, but because they're living through it. They're living through a second round of, of a world war. So they are very, I think, clear eyed very sober about the problem of human evil, but then also they're not cynics. They do believe in grace. They do believe in the capacity of, of men and women to make good choices and to choose the good. That's the other great, you know, attractive thing about the stories, right? Yeah, it's not like Gulliver's Travels were in the end, if if our listeners know what that is. It's a book about a guy who travels around. It's the book where you see the giant and you see the little people. That's what it's most well known for. But what also at the very end of that book, it's this kind of it's the end is like he goes in. He only talks to, I believe, the horses. He kind of forgets everyone else. And it's this very cynical, like, well, I'll give it up, whatever. It's kind of this thing. But that's not how Tolkien and C.S. Lewis interpret this. It's kind of like, well, let's fight another round, but let's keep on moving. It's not, oh, throw up your hands. It's all over. Even though from their perspective, that's that's would honestly be a very it, it. 
honestly, people could forgive him for it because they've been through basically everything. It seemed yes. like. Taylor, you said it beautifully, and 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 this is part of what helps me to appreciate what their achievements in their works because they're not they're not cynical, they're not utopian, they're not dreamy idealists. They're I think they're sort of Christian realists. So they're hopeful, but they're also realistic. And you're right. Uh, a lot of men and women, particularly the men who'd been through the First World War, they did become cynics. So, for example, in Oxford in 1933, young men and women at Oxford, they have these Oxford Union debates that still go on to this day. And they had a debate. The motion was um, no one in this house will fight for king or country under any circumstances. No one will fight. We will not fight for king or country. 1933. For a British, for a young British man to say that in the 1930s tells you something's changed because there was a lot of patriotism, certainly going into the First World War, pride in, in Great Britain. And, and they voted and, they, and the majority approved the resolution. We won't fight for king and country under any circumstances. So there was a cynicism about patriotism, about valor, about heroism, the idea that any war could be just or, or be justifiable. But Tolkien and Lewis, both of them are going to resist that. And they're going to say, yeah, there are some causes worth fighting for, even if we think we're on the losing side. The important thing is to be on the right side, not necessarily the winning side, but the right side. And, th and they were drawn to those kinds of stories themselves as young men, Beowulf, um, uh, Virgil, D uh, Dante, these great stories of heroism and sacrifice, right? Yes, I've read I've read the first um, Dante, his first part of his book, and Abby. Beowulf. That class that I took I've been, that I've been mentioning has been a, a great class in general, as wow. I'm sure you can probably tell. Wow. Uh, but it's definitely been interesting to see. Yeah, those I we talked a lot about again this class that these. I, correct me if I'm wrong here, but weren't they at, either after the war um, or maybe before the war a little bit? Weren't they like his classical professors? Something like yeah, that. they were professors of English literature. Tolkien's specialty was in more the ancient and early medieval period. He loved languages. Uh, Lewis was not a modern uh, professor of literature, but like Chaucer, uh, Middle Ages. But they loved these epic tales. They're professors of English literature, and they love these great epic tales. And I think the reason there's something about the hero, and you know it from Beowulf, who, who simply goes into battle what, regardless of the odds, because there's a noble cause to fight for and maybe to die for, and that's that's what matters. And there's a certain valor and validation of that. No matter no matter how it turns out, you've chosen the right side. And they're drawn to those stories as young men. And even the cataclysm of the First World War didn't make them cynics. But I think their Christian faith also helped them not to become cynics as well. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. So I'm going to spoil Beowulf here because you, everyone has had like a few thousand years to listen to read this book. So if you haven't already, well, uh, you're going to get it spoiled. Spoiler alert, go ahead. <laughs> so Beowulf, in the end, he actually ends up dying. I believe it was a dragon that kills him. Well, um, and it's, it's yeah. or something. It was like some monster, a dragon or a big um, kind of lizard-like monster, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong about that one. But um no, here, correct me if I'm wrong. No, no, no. You're, you're, you're on track. He, he, he'll, he'll take on the dragon. He'll take on Grendel and, Gre and, then, and then Grendel's, uh, Grendel's uh, uh, what do you call, um, mother, right? Uh, and it, it, at the end of the day, he, it, it takes him. He, he, can't, he can't survive it at the end. It's like he's taken on too much. Go ahead. 
But it's still, yeah, like you were saying, it's this idea of keep fighting, keep fighting. Even if you lose, you won because you made the right decision. But exactly. Grendel, if you don't know, is a monster. Like he's, how what, How would you describe Grendel to an audience that might not be familiar? Boy, you know, that's a great question because it's been a while since I read Beowulf. You're closer to it right now. How would you describe the monster? Um, Maybe like, maybe we'll end up posting a, like a picture, but um, <laughs> on our social media, but like maybe kind of an orc at, well, Tolkien right there, or kind of ogre kind of thing. I don't know, some some big beast, giant monster, ugly, like... Is it a cross, between, a cross between an orc and a dragon and, uh, I don't know, maybe one of those flying reptile critters? Who knows? <laughs> yeah, it's some, just imagine, like, one of your worst nightmares, double your size, and eats you at night. And, and throw in Schmeagle, and you're there, right? Yes. <laughs> Every yeah, Everything about it is bad. It, but oh. as going back to the original point, it's like... That Beowulf loses kind of in the end, but he's won the moral victory. He beat yes. Grendel, the first monster, but his Grendel's mother kills him. But it's like this idea of they they're still holding up strong. So I yes. really I, I like this kind of outlook on it. That's right. It's it's perseverance through the battle and and loyalty and maintaining your integrity and your courage. Uh, right through the end, those those were kind of classical Christian values that they that they began to learn as young men in their own ed- early education. But then I think as they grew and matured, and in their friendship, and this is the key part of the story for me, Tolkien and Lewis became great friends after the war. They met in 1926, and they started sharing their stories with each other. And I think that reinforced in both of them this commitment to that heroic idea that heroic ideal, and they knew that it was at risk. In the 1930s, a lot of people didn't want to hear about heroism you know, after the First World But we're done with that. We're done with patriotism. We're done with fighting for our country. And they want to revive that ancient, classical, Christian, heroic ideal, but they want to reinvent it for the modern mind. And that's kind of the genius of what they've done with their works. Their stories that just seem to have a universal appeal now to us as modern people, not as you know, ancient medieval people, we're still drawn to these ancient medieval stories or myths, if you will, if you will, but they're written in a language in a way that we can grasp, right? For sure. It's really interesting because I've been kind of more experiencing more of these great works of literature, Tolkien's books, C.S. Lewis, Charles yeah. Dickens is one of my favorites, Jane oh, wow. Austen, all of these people, You, a lot of people modern days are like, oh, these books are boring, they're old books, they're probably big words. Actually, they're not. They're surprisingly not. Like Charles Dickens, he gets a bad rap because some people don't like the Christmas Carol, but it's actually really well written. Check out his other books. <laughs> yes, absolutely right. A Tale of Two Cities. I'm right there with you, Taylor. And I, I just think you're getting an amazing education. You're, you're, you're reading books that I just didn't get to until I was much later in life. I'm still catching up. So you and I are going to have to like, I'm going to have to get into a book club with you at some point so I can catch up on my reading over here. That is just terrific. So people ask, well, how did Tolkien and Lewis have such a great imagination? They, they were steeped in those kinds of books and stories. That's how they had something to draw from. The well, the wells went deep. Right now, it seems outside of schools like the one you're in, the wells are pretty shallow. And that's why I think one of the reasons we don't have many great writers like these guys. The wells were deep. They were they were really grounded in that classical Christian tradition of literature 
which I think we got to bring back. I'm so glad to hear you're in a school that's committed to that. That's just fabulous. Yes, sir. So it's interesting. I Obviously, our podcast thrives off of modern writers, like all the fiction, modern fiction writers. But still, yeah. there's something about, there's nothing wrong with the modern writers. They're great within their own category, but it's different. Like you have literature and you have modern kind of uh, books. It's, it's yeah. just a totally different category. You can't compare... Um, Stuart Gibbs is an author that we recently had on. He's a well-known yep. New York Times bestselling author. Um, yep. And you can't compare him to Charles Dickens because it's just two different categories. Nothing yeah, against either of them, but just two I different hear. people. Two different people, right. You know, there was a time, in, in, I think it was 1937. By now, Tolkien and Lewis are good friends and they're meeting together on a regular basis. Uh, but they're very dissatisfied with the literature that's coming out in the 1930s because it's very negative. It's very pessimistic. It's anti-hero, all this kind of stuff. And so Lewis turns to, to Tolkien, and his nickname for Tolkien was Tollers. That's what he called them, Tollers. And so he turns to Tollers, and he says, well, Tollers, if they won't write the kinds of books we want to read, we're going to have to write them ourselves. And that's when Tolkien really starts to write The Lord of the Rings. Lewis will write the first of his space trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, which I really recommend to you if you haven't read it. It's, a, it's heavy stuff, but it's, it's very readable, but you gotta, you got to brace yourself. It's also very um, challenging stuff. And so they, they just start writing the kinds of books, the kinds of stories that they want to read. These heroic, mythic stories with a, with a great tale of good versus evil, but not in a simplistic way, as you know, Taylor, because even the most noble characters in their stories are liable to temptation, right? They're flawed. They're, they're afraid. They don't always do the right thing. They sometimes betray their companions, and yet we don't give up hope on them. Even, even Tolkien won't give up on Gollum. Even at the end, there's hope for Gollum, this twisted, wretched creature. There's this idea that there's the potential for grace even to reach a character like that. So they're just amazing stories, aren't they? They are for sure. And I believe I have somewhere, I've written down some of the quotes from that section. I remember like that was a very impactful because it's a very interesting thing that a lot of people skip over. And I think the movies did. Um, it's yeah. just a very interesting concept. Yeah. And I think this is a theme worth mentioning also, too, is we sometimes forget that the way they conveyed what heroism was, it wasn't like how we do heroes now. Our heroes today are kind of these superheroes. They got the superhero power. They got great looks. They got great firepower, whatever it is. The heroes of their stories, well, at the end of the day, they can't win the victory on their own. Because think about it. Frodo, at the end of the story, you know what he does, Taylor, spoiler alert, <laughs> he's, at the, he's at the cracks of Mount Doom, I will not now do the thing I came to do, the ring is mine, and he puts it back on his finger. How, does, how is the ring destroyed? Not by Frodo, not by the fellowship, it's Gollum. Gollum, who bites the ring off his finger and then falls into the cracks of doom. So the way Tolkien described that was, it was a sudden, miraculous grace that turned things around. Uh, and Tolkien referred to that as the you catastrophe, the undoing of a catastrophe. Yes, yes, I've heard this. And it's the same for C.S. Lewis, right? The last battle, it's there they are at the stable and, they, and they're tossed into the stable and they think this is the end. This is where the dark power resides. And we know what happens. Aslan has turned the stable into a portal into his country. So they're saved, they're redeemed not because of their own strength, but because of a source of, of grace and strength outside of themselves, which is a very deeply Christian idea, isn't it? 
It is for sure. Well, I'm looking at the clock here and I realize that we've gone a little bit over, but this has been a fabulous discussion and I'm so glad that we were able to have you on. Absolutely, Taylor. Please get me back on the show sometime. Love to come back. So yeah, Maddie wasn't on the interview. So let's let Maddie start off and say what she liked about it. Well, Taylor, you're right. I was not on that interview, but I did find it very fascinating. I love that we usually use the word interesting and then now we started using the word fascinating. So I'm going to I'm going to come with a different word. Entertaining. I like that one. It was a very lively discussion. Um <laughs> but I really enjoyed it cuz I didn't know. I've read both books from C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. So I thought it was really cool. I never really knew how close of friends they were. Um, and that all the things that shaped them like during the war and stuff. So I don't know. I found that really interesting because it was more of a background into two pop- very, very popular authors um, and kind of giving us a little bit more about that. So I liked it a lot. Yeah, I thought that was also, as you just said, we say fascinating a lot. That was also very entertaining. And I almost said interesting again. It was very entertaining talking to him about classics, Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, and how the war shaped their lives. I thought that was very interesting (laughs) we're gonna like ban interesting from our vocabulary one episode and like see if we can do that because man we overuse that we do but yeah you're right I really did enjoy that and it was really cool because I've read like I said I've read both I've read books from both of those authors um but I never knew you can see so many parallel parallels between them and kind of see how the war being in the war and fighting in the world wars really shaped that. And I never picked up on that, but I thought that was really interesting because there's so much more to those books than just a fun, good versus evil story. Like if you really dive into those, there's so much that you can uncover so much that you can learn from them. And I really enjoyed that because it was kind of eye opening. (laughs) Yeah, I thought so too. With a lot of great literature, it's like that. There are many layers to it. And I find that very thought provoking. Oh, big word. Well, it's actually. No, I just Googled. I just Googled synonyms for interesting. (laughs) And I have them pulled up over here so that I can say something besides interesting. Okay. Well, that works. Thought provoking. That's the sound actually like we know what we're doing. So we realized later that we forgot to ask two of the questions towards the end. So those are in the notes section. If you just want to open up wherever your notes are, it's they'll be on the website. If you're listening on the website, they'll be in the notes and Apple podcasts and Stitcher notes, they all, all those things have notes. So you'll be able to see it and you'll see his answers to our, our questions. What books have had an impact on you and why, and what advice do you have for teenagers? So sorry about that. That was a slip of my memory, but anyway, (laughs) Maddie, am I missing anything? I think we've covered everything. You want to move on to announcements? Sure. No, we announce the same things over and over again, every single week. Um, we are aiming for the moon podcast is on Twitter and Instagram. Um, you can find us there aiming the number four moon. And then also we're on YouTube. Um, that is my station. I'm on the YouTube channel and you can find us at aiming for the moon podcast, put podcast. Cause a lot of songs will be coming up to so put podcast, <laughs> but you'll be able to find us on all three of those. Yep. You should be able to, unless there's something wrong with them, which there shouldn't be. <laughs> that would be a problem. Yeah. Yeah, so you said aimingforthemoon.com. We have guest pages about the authors and people. We have all that. 
Um, we have our merch at artbyheart.com. It's, there's also a link in our Aiming for the Moon website. Am I missing anything? Um, rate, review, and subscribe if you want to. There's absolutely zero pressure because I do not like podcasts that pressure people into that. So if you want to, we'd love yes. for you. And our new section about quotes. So, Maddie, what's a good name for this section? We called it Quirky Quotes, but none of the quotes are quirky, so. I know. We were trying to come up with one really fast because we needed to record fast. I don't know. We'll figure that out. Right now, we're just going to call it the quote section. (laughs) That works. Um, Email us or put it on Twitter or something, and we'll see it. So, okay. Our quirky quote of the day is, drumroll, please. This comes from a classic. It is, on what slender threads do life and fortune hang? That is from The Count of Monte Cristo. So, yeah, I really love that book. It's an awesome book. Definitely go check that out. It's really, really long, though. So you might not want to. But, yeah. And I think that's all. So don't forget. Set your sights high. And aim for the moon.